Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Howard Kincaid, recently retired from solar turbines with nearly 40 years experience in people, process, and product development. During the past 15 years, he's been a thought leader in the development and introduction of lean principles beyond manufacturing and into our transaction office work. Designing the Future, a book by Jim Morgan and Jeffrey Liker, documents this innovative work and the positive impact in the business productivity. Welcome to the show, Howard. Well, thanks for having me, Douglas, and looking forward to the conversation. You know, when you're out here in Central Coast of California, I was really inspired by uh, some of our exchanges, and it kind of got me motivated, and my juices flowing. Yeah, being retired, okay, but uh, I still have the passion and love for this stuff. Yeah, I could really tell when we dug in that it's still a big part of your identity, and it was really fun hearing from someone who has such a deep experience working in lean and applying it in a lot of different ways. I think that listeners will really enjoy hearing about the diversity by which you have brought some of these ideas to bear. So as usual, let's get started with hearing a little bit about how you got your start. How did you get into this work of lean and then starting to apply it in new ways? Well, you you know, that's interesting. So, you know, my formative early years, and and maybe I'll take on a journey of, of how I got here, it's it's never a, a straight line, at least it's never been for me, never a straight line approach to these things. It wasn't like a, I took a class and all of a sudden, aha, I get this stuff and now it's my new passion. But for me, early on, I was a creator. I mean, always a creator, an innovator. You know, if you ask my dad, probably at the age of five, I was putting stuff together in the garage. I was playing with electrical stuff, uh, probably shouldn't have been. Uh, had, you know, radio control boats and planes and everything going around the house and uh, taking stuff apart. My dad would probably say took more things apart than put them together. So early on, I, I had this passion to create. And then through the years, that kind of matures into new passions or at least uh, supporting passions. So early on, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. And, and thankfully, I was good at engineering type of courses, math and science, and found my way here to Cal Poly and San Luis Obispo, California, uh, which is the place I have now retired to, which is interesting. So a 40-year journey from there and then back. At Cal Poly, you know, I got excited and in the world, the engineering opened up a little bit to me. It wasn't just the design aspects. It was the technical problem solving and the diversity and scope of the problem. And I think that's something that has always motivated me and drawn me in is problems and the complexity of problems. You know, at first it's the technical and I was always inspired about creating things, always looked up to the sky, you know, I wanted to be that guy in the aerospace, still remember those moments and, and some of the listeners probably do too if, if, they've, if they got gray hairs like me. 
is uh, the man that walked on the moon. I mean, I still remember this, that to this day. It was so inspirational. So <clears throat> dreams fulfilled pretty early, right out of school. And I'm designing things for planes, um, doing a lot of cool stuff with analysis. I work for a company called Garrett Air Research, now Honeywell. And uh, they let me do a lot of creative things. I was surrounded by people that actually did help the man walk on the moon, which was an awesome inspiration. Eventually, we found our way uh, to San Diego. So my wife and I moved to San Diego. Uh, she was in computer science, and we had a couple great opportunities there. Worked for a fantastic aerospace company again called Sunstrand, now Hamilton Sunstrand. Got to do some really cool things. And it was right around then I was getting more into leadership roles. I had some leadership roles at, at Garrett, but I started gravitating towards leading programs and people. And I, I began to really enjoy that. It was chaotic and frustrating at times, but it fed my desire to learn more and problems kept getting bigger and my involvement had to, had to expand as well. And then maybe there's a new chapter in my life. And right about there is, uh, it was channel surfing as a lot of us did back then. Maybe there weren't as many channels to surf as there are today, but I came across PBS and there was a show about a book called The Machine That Changed the World. So if any of your listeners are involved in Lean and All, they're probably familiar with that book. So in that book, the phrase lean was coined. So lean comes from that book, the study of Toyota and, and uh, not just Toyota, but North America, Europe and the American, North American uh, automotive market. The book was written by Womack, Ruse and Jones. And I'm not a big reader, right? But I watched this show. It was fascinating to me. And it talked about comparing and contrasting the creation and the manufacturing of cars. And I was enthralled by it. So I pick up the little silly book called The Machine That Changed the World. Don't read a lot, but I think within a week I'd consumed the book. And uh, a watershed moment for me, one of the, those changing vectors in my life was I walked in the back of uh, the assembly floor. It's usually how I got to my desk upstairs at Sunstrand. And all of a sudden, the world was looking different to me. Not only different, but much, much bigger, right? So I looked at the manufacturing floor and I began to think about the influences that I had on their lives, their efficiencies and what they're trying to do in my drawings, right? And, and working with them. And then I walked through supply chain on the way up the desk and go, wow, there's a huge relationship between me and supply chain, what they're trying to accomplish and what their supplier is trying to accomplish. And then, of course, there's a customer in, in many other organizations. So the world blew up to me and the, the problems got more complicated. And as a leadership role, I saw that I had to venture off and engage more people in the process. Fortunately, there was an interesting little initiative we had, you know, for old timers like myself, we call them flavors of the month. So if you've been in the industry more than 15 months, 15 years, you see changes. And uh, initiatives come and go, and we'll talk a little bit about that maybe later in this conversation. But they had this initiative called Dimming Problem Solving. And I don't know, it was 13 steps, nine steps, or five, or whatever. You know, every problem solving has a certain number of steps. And I led a, a continuous improvement initiative to increase the velocity of our testing. And that was eye-opening, just following these steps mechanistically. And we'll, we'll talk about initiatives. And when you first engage with initiatives, they're formulas, they're tools, they're mechanisms, but there's something much, much deeper that supports them. We'll get into that maybe a little bit later. We'll follow these mechanistically. We made some incredible process improvements. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I mean, we we're taking uh, test times from down to 30% of what they were before, improved quality and everything else. So 
that was really motivating, exciting to me. Unfortunately, the aerospace industry was going through a pretty big nosedive, and I've been through in 10 years, I've already been through a couple of those, and unfortunately saw an organization, 1,300 people go to 500. A friend of mine had just joined Solar Turbines and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Howard, how would you be interested in coming over here and helping us out? And I took a look into it and, and I made another career change. And so I've been with Solar Turbines or had been with Solar Turbines for 28 years. It's an incredible company. Uh, a lot of people are probably thinking about solar turbines. Oh, you do solar cells, you do wind turbines. Well, no. Solar turbines has been around since the late 1920s, and we were called the Prudent Aircraft Company at the time, and then the name changed to solar. I won't give you a long history of solar, but we are the world's leader in industrial gas turbine manufacturing uh, in the intermediate size, up to about 30,000 horsepower, and we're all over the world. And so joined that company, great company. Again, my challenges keep getting bigger and bigger. So this company is extremely diverse. It, it handles it all the way from the sale of the equipment to the installation, sometimes the, uh, or certainly the installation and the maintenance. And we even buy equipment back and refurbish it in that whole cycle. So it's a very vertically integrated organization with tons of different engineering organizations and service organizations and things of that nature. So the opportunities were just endless. So excited to get over there. I started out my career there and Again, more team leadership, program and product management type of activities. But I was still practicing very traditional, what I'll call Gantt chart management. All right, so you get an assignment and from the top down, someone says, okay, we need this product in the market in, in two and a half years and Howard, go. And so I'd symbol on my team. Sometimes they would show up to the meetings and all that good stuff. I go from cubicle to cubicle, gathering information. I put together a Gantt chart. It all fit. We're going to do this two years. And then I would start the uh, meetings and the push and chase would begin. Right. And the ownership wasn't there with the team members. It was always a struggle. Usually I was very successful, but the amount of energy it took to execute those programs was just mind boggling. And the, and the chaos in big organizations and the be chaos in small organizations as well was really, really a challenge. So it was more of a test of perseverance, possibly, than orchestration. I mean, I certainly can persevere, and so very successful, but still, it, it was a difficult journey for everyone. And then my career went on to some managing of organizations. I got exposures to organizations, which uh, is kind of eye-opening when you actually have to lead organizations and work with others to lead organizations. And again, your problem statement gets far more challenging as well. Uh, now you have the accountability of mentoring and developing people, process improvements in organizations. And so moved on from there a little bit into project management, got to feel our customers. So from the customer facing perspective, you can sit in engineering on these organizations and you can be well intended and well engaged with the customer. But until you live in their space, sometimes you don't get the silly things you have to do that don't make sense. So that was a wonderful experience. But I still yearn to get back into product development. I just, that was my passion. So here was where Lean comes into the whole journey. Uh, I got tapped on the shoulder. Uh, the director of uh, gas turbine engineering, a large organization, several hundred people in it. He just got that position. He tapped me on the shoulder and says, hey, Howard, I need some help. Right? We had worked together on a prior project and hit it off real well. He says, we need to improve the process of improving the quality of our products in the field and the speed of which we do it. We, we need to make sure that our customers 
don't endure any pain. And that was pretty much the moniker there at Solar Turbines. We were insanely customer focused and they still are to this day. And he says, I want you to come down and help me develop some teams and processes in order to accomplish this. And, and that involved, I mean, this, this company is over 8,000 employees. I mean, there's, there's fields, the field sites all over the world. There's multiple organizations. And again, we touch our product all the way from the point of sale all the way to servicing and uh, in many cases, refurbishing their products. So it's extremely complex. And when you do engineering of products that have that type of lifespan, our products out there 30 plus years, it becomes a really complicated problem to make sure you're doing the right thing for the new product as well as the existing product. So I was up for that challenge and he threw an MPI program, new product introduction program, upgrading one of our, our turbines in the mix. So, okay, I definitely get my teeth into this. But here's what changed. After two weeks in that job, I sat down and he's asking me how I was doing. And there's this book that started creeping across the table towards me. And I went, oh, no, I got homework. And I'm not a huge reader. And I'm just going, oh, this is not good. I already got to do some reading. What the heck does Mike have in store for me? And the book, matter of fact, is, is sitting to my right. Uh, we just moved in the house and unpacked some boxes here. And it's called Lean Product Process Development. Uh, by Alan Ward, and Alan Ward has passed away. He was a professor at the University of Michigan. But some of his students and John Shook, uh, Derwood Sobuk, John Shook, brought this book that Alan was writing uh, into publication. And so what's interesting about this book is when you read it, it, it was written in a way that I can totally emotionally connect it. So I talked about that, those frustrations of the world of push and chase and try to get your work through organizations and try to get engagement from different organizations to add value to create great products, services, or processes. And when I read this book, I, I felt like the person was sitting right next to me talking to me. I could feel his tone, his passion, emotion, and the, the pain and the challenge that he reflected on in traditional ways of managing development of product and process really resonated with me. I, I felt that experience through the years. You know, I was probably uh, 25 years into my career at that point. And it resonated all the way to the point where when Mike sat down with me and said, hey, how's the book going? I told him, I'm all in. I mean, I am all in. This is either going to take me to be the CEO of this company or I'm going to get fired. Somewhere there. Uh, the reality is somewhere in between the two, which is probably a good thing. But I was all in. And I can see in that book and I can feel in the book the things that worked and the things that didn't work and why and what the behaviors look like and what the organization felt like. So jumped in at the new MPI program, developing a new turbine. We played around with, you know, fun little uh, tools, you know, Obea, great tool. Anyone familiar with visual management and Obea? And there's all sorts of different versions of it. Fantastic tool. A3 thinking, great problem solving tool, even a better mentoring tool. Five Ys, value stream mapping, 5S, visual management, Kaizen, Gimba, Pulse systems, all those things we played with. And the, the team that I ran, it was the most productive team I'd ever run. Uh, probably the most rewarding. It was probably one of the first, if not the first MPI programs at Solar Turbines that was under budget. We were under capital budget. We were under our material expense budget. We were slightly above on labor. Our product costs was a fraction of our target, which almost never happens. I mean, a lot of people that do product development, you do the product development, and then what, what happens after the product development program? You have the cost reduction program. 
which is interesting. Why don't you have the cost reduction program at the front of the product development program? And someday maybe we can talk about the, the subtleties of that, the power of that. But the team was also very engaged. It was the first time I had a team meeting. I still remember this today. I had a team meeting and we'd go around the room in the OPEA and, and people would be talking. And, and I noticed that the members of the team weren't talking to me, right? They weren't delivering the message to me. They were looking at their colleagues across the way and they were engaged with each other. So this is the first time I really experienced a team on the boat where they are all stroking together. They're all swimming in the same direction. They're all stroking together. They know how they interact with each other and they were taking tremendous pride in that. That was a wonderful experience and I attribute a lot of the, the lean tools, but maybe more subtly, and we'll talk about it in a second, the lean values, the cultural values that supported the tools. So things are going great. Uh, you know, we're, the teams are getting great accolades. We were getting attention all the way back to Caterpillar. Caterpillar is our mother company. Executives from Caterpillar are coming out and seeing what they're doing. Everyone's getting real excited about this. And Kaizen events and A3 thinking tutorials, everything was exploding within engineering. And then something happened. And I think maybe for a lot of listeners, they've seen this before. It started to wane. All right. And I was that lean evangelist. And, you know, I walked down the hallway and now it was, uh, shh, here comes our quick duck. Now close the door. It felt like that. Now I was running another MPI program and we were doing really well, but it was the culture within the team and, and the values in the teams and their sense of experimentation within that team. But you got outside of the team and this enthusiasm was beginning to wane. And so there you go. Another flavor of the month. As I said earlier, I was all in. So why is this waning? Why do programs and initiatives fade away? And I really wanted to understand that because I really believed in this one. And so I did a little reflection on a reflection event. So for a lot of you maybe listening uh, and you've been on similar journeys, whether it's with lean or other initiatives, uh, maybe it's agile and other uh, process improvement techniques. If you see them begin to wane, think about doing a reflection on the reflection events. And that's what I did. I'm a, I'm a weird guy. And so one weekend, I was really frustrated in how can I get my finger on the pulse as to why we're losing the momentum here? And I did a reflection event, reflection, just that. And there was, I don't know, I grabbed, I think it was half a dozen Kaizen events we did on different processes or problems that we're having with products and all the different techniques that we use to solve them. And they all were great programs. Right. And so I looked at it from a PDA cycle. We did great planning. We understood what the problem was. We understood what the root cause of the problem was and we implemented a great solution and we trialed it and it worked fantastic and everyone got accolades. But four or five years later, why weren't we following that process anymore? Why did we revert back to those old wagon wheels and the ruts they, they formed and looked at five or six of those. And fortunately, once while stars aligned, I just read a book called Toyota Kata by Dr. Rother, another University of Michigan professor. And I woke up in the middle of the night and an aha moment struck me. You know, so we're talking about kind of chapters in my development and, and how it's drawing me in more and more to the people, process, and tools versus the product. And I got up, grabbed the napkin. This is a true story. Grabbed the napkin and I drew a house. 
So for some of you probably know the TPFs, uh, Toyota Production System House. I think Liker kind of coined that, uh, that visual first. And at the top is, is the customer. We do everything for the customer. So if we're not adding value to the customer, why are we in business, right? This isn't a charity. And then there were pillars that held that up. And, and I drew on the left pillar, I, I drew a pillar of uh, continuous flow of value-added work. You know, why would we do anything other than creating value for a customer? So that, that gets to the, the reciprocal of don't do waste, right? So that value of, of that and then the Kaizen to look for that. On the right pillar, I put in built-in quality, which is basically get to the source of, you know, of your defect, right? We don't want, we want zero defects. I would argue that's a little bit of the left column, but yeah, we put that one there. And I did not put the column, and we should always think about that. I did not put the column of people development. That's very, very important. But I had those two pillars there. And then the bottom, and this is my aha moment, I wrote down standard work as the foundation, and leveled work as a foundation principle. Now, when I mentioned standard work, uh, you know, for a lot of your listeners, please don't run away. Yeah, <laughs> listen in. Standard work was instrumental. And what I looked at on all these Kaizen events and process improvements, we never really documented new standard work. And if we did document standard work, it wasn't always followed after the fact. We didn't have that cultural value of following standard work. So if you do process improvements, where are they going to reside for reuse? Where are they going to reside for further improvement? How is that going to permeate into your organization? How is it going to permeate the way you do things today, tomorrow, and five years from now? And that was missing. So what you're left with, this is probably another phrase a lot of people think about, what you're left with is the tribal knowledge of those who are directly involved in that Kaizen event. They learned it, they understood it, but it didn't permeate within the organization. So there was a cultural value there that I saw missing. Now, Solar Terms is a fantastic company. Don't get me wrong, incredibly efficient company. Uh, I could have never done this thing without the type of support for improvements that we have culturally, it's fantastic. But yet there was a cycle improvement we need in the world of standard work. And then the thing on the right side there, the workflow management system. And we had chaos. We had push and chase. You know, we had priority meeting after priority meeting. And, and you know, next week was another list of top priorities. And, you know, everyone came to work, had three things to do, and they ended up with five things to do at the end of the day. And there was this weird chaos. And, and that was hard to lead in, and that was hard to work in. And so I had leveled work on the bottom side. So I walk into the office the next morning with this piece of paper. And I open up the Toyota Way book by Liker, and I hadn't looked at that book probably three years. I read about three years before, and I found the house. And it was just pretty much fundamentally the same thing that I drew that night before. And the aha moment for me was when I read that book, and, and for everyone, think about this. When you read books, a lot of times I, re I read the paragraph, right? And they explained the house and the importance of all the different pillars and everything else. And they talked about the importance of standard work. And I would nod my head up and down. Ah, I get it. Makes sense. But I didn't get it. It wasn't really, I couldn't see it, right? Could I, so I could not at that point associate with what we were doing in the workforce that was not supportive of that principle. So a fortune to have that aha moment. And then uh, ran into some challenges in my career. And the, the challenge was the leadership around was changing. Nothing wrong with the new leaders. All great leaders of the company all bring wonderful perspectives and value, but 
the person Mike that I had was onto another part of the organization, and he was my mentor, and he was he was uh, probably the, my biggest supporter, helped me through some really large cultural transformations, and gave me some leeway. That was going away, and I felt pretty alone there, and it was was getting kind of challenging. Now I had the team I was working on; it was fantastic. The team was doing great things, but what's next? And the stars aligned again for me. An old colleague that I worked with in the past just was assigned the director of gas pressure engineering, which was an engineering and operations organization. So it's a fairly large organization, not huge, but fairly large, quite diverse. And he knocks, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, Howard, um, I just did a survey with all my leaders, you know, and they're saying that, you know, we have too much work to do. We have priority problems. We do too much wasteful things, yada, yada, and predoed it all out. And he goes, hey, can lean solve these problems? Yeah, sure. Not a problem, Bill. It can crush these problems. Oh, great. What do I need to do? <laughs> I don't think he liked this answer. I said, well, you need to read some books first. And after you've done some reading, I'll tell you what, you can buy me a beer and we'll talk about it. And I've had that segue with people before, and I haven't gotten too many beers out of that. Um, and so I did get a tap on the shoulder about a month later and Bill says, Hey, I'm just about through with the lean product and process development by Ward. I want to talk. I went, Oh wow. Someone read it. So we sat down and not only did he read it, but he studied it like it was a textbook. I mean, there was underlinings, there was question marks, there was cross throughs and you name it. And here was someone who was really trying to understand these principles and he didn't necessarily accept them at face value either. All right. So he was with the struggle. And so about three to six months of, you know, me going up there late at night after work and we'd sit in his office two, three hours and talk about these things. He decided that he wanted change and not just change the mechanistic way they do things, not just change the organizational structure. He really wanted to change the cultural values, the thinking values of an organization. And Let's get back to flavor of the month. You know, to me, my argument was the reason that a lot of the lean ideas and tools were losing their engagement was our cultural values did not necessarily align with the cultural values that the tools needed to sustain them. And that's big. And then I look back on a lot of the other initiatives I'd been involved in through my years. You know, I talked about the, the dimming problem solving. Um, you know, we can talk about TQM. We can talk about uh, zero defects. I mean, probably a plethora of different initiatives that went on through through my 30 plus year career at that point. And almost all of them, I think, died because our fundamental core values of people and leaders were not aligned. And so I would contend is, is if you make a list, and I'm a big lean proponent, but there's a lot of other good uh, initiatives. It made a list of all the tools. You know, I mentioned a Obea and A3s and 5Ys, stream Mapping, Visual Management, Kaizen, Go to the Gimba, Pull and Flow. If I had none of those tools, I had no books that told me about those tools, I had no one to mentoring those tools, but I had certain fundamental core values, I bet you I'd create those tools myself. And so that was a little bit my awe moment. And, and Bill was coming along really quickly. And he says, I want to model my organization around those values. And the values that he wanted to model the organization around was continuous flow of value added work. That sounds pretty darn simple. 
But what the value really was is developing an eye for where your value is and where your waste is and developing a culture and organization to identify and find those. And of course, if you want to identify and find those, you do things like value stream mapping and visual management, and they start coming out. And then he also wanted to uh, build a culture of standard work and manage our workflow better. So we didn't have the chaos and the push and chase and all the waste that was involved in that. And then uh, he tapped me on the shoulder and says, hey, by the way, I have a couple of retire, retirements in my group, and I'd like you to run the product management group. I, w I want to form a true product management team, kind of built around the concept of chief engineer. And boy, that's a lightning rod of a conversation point within engineering groups. But he really wanted to build an organization around these principles. And of course, I said yes. You know, and that that led me to you know some of the I think some of the most rewarding experiments and uh, changes that I'd ever been in a part of my life. So that was like the last five plus years of my career. We introduced a workflow management system that had incredible efficiency gains. I mean, I, had, I think to my bio there about we're talking about 65% improvement in uh, velocity of work through an engineering organization. And, and this was based on metrics they had kept for over five years prior to the initiatives. So some really, really incredible things. So if you look at my journey, how did I get to this passion for people process tools? It's, it started with the passion of creation. And then when you live on the journey of creation, you realize that a lot of what you create gets complicated and then teams come involved. You realize you can't do it all yourselves. So and now you have to orchestrate a team and bring all that value into it. And eventually I got to the point where my passion is creation again, but the creation of the organizations and the people and the process and the values that create products and services. That that's just an awesome experience. It was really fascinating listening to that journey from the creativity and the problem solving and some of your points around the interconnectedness of the work and how that's kind of born out of the complexity and you know people are working on all sorts of different things and they had to be brought together and it was really profound when you mentioned this observation that oh wow people are now talking to each other mm -hmm. and so love to hear a little bit about why you think that is why is it different that people begin to start talking to each other when some of these tools and approaches are, are brought to bear. You know, that's that's a really good point. Matter of fact, I, I talked about the meeting where they're they're talking across from me versus to me. The, there was a there was a cultural difference on that team. Okay, and the difference was, and I mentioned during the on the, in the journey, was I used to run projects the same way, very tops down. I was given a date and. I'd walk around and talk to the experts and say, hey, you know, we have to, you know, do a bunch of different aero development. How many wheels is that going to be? How long is it going to take and stuff? And everyone's kind of throwing out numbers and everything else and some estimates. And I go on some of my own experience and lead times and all. And I put together this Gantt chart. And inevitably, there's a lot of wishful thinking in there. Right. And uh, then you just start to put a program together where you're managing risk. How many things can you do in parallel? When can you kick something off? And you're squishing it into this Gantt chart or other tool or technique that you use. And then you get your team together and uh, you present the, the, the plan and ask yourself this question. Whose program is that? That's your program. 
That's not their program, right? I mean, you know, they'll, they'll usually go, well, Howard, that's wishful thinking. I can't do this. This isn't happening. That's going to happen, et cetera. There's no buy-in. It's not their program. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the program lead. It's the executive. It's their program. It's not, it's not the team's program. And so something that, that we did, it came out of value stream mapping. And value stream mapping is a, a really, it's a, it's a great continuous improvement tool where you, you look at a process of the past and you bring the people in who did the work don't bring the managers in because they don't know what's going on and i'm a manager i understand that don't bring the people in that manage the people bring the people in that did the work and then you have them put their little stickies up on the wall right what they did when and, and a really simple little effort if you train them on wait waste are you know where was your rework right where was your over processing where was your waiting and then they throw all the little red stickies up there and uh, what we did with this this team, the team that worked so well together, is we brought they watched this whole journey of a prior development team, very similar development effort on a, another turbine, and they listened and they watched and they talked to the people that had the previous program, and then we did something called a future state map. Okay, I've got my team together. So what are we going to do and when? And I emphasize the word we. It wasn't, I wasn't giving a final date, right? I, I was just saying, what can we do? What can we do differently first, right? Because we don't do anything differently than the previous team. We're going to end up with pretty much the same results. They had some great ideas, and we, we can talk about the role of the OBEA and there and a few other things. But what can we do differently, and what would that future state look like? So they put all their stickies up, and magic happened for me. It is all of a sudden... I'm watching people put stickies up and they're looking for a sticky as an input to one of their stickies because you can't put your sticky down when I'm out of the drawing done because I need the analytical results first, right? So they're looking at the analyst guy. And what happens in that room? They start talking to each other. They start learning from each other. They start developing some empathy for each other. And at the end of the day, you end up with something called a plan. And it's not my plan as a program manager, it's their plan. Now, I got a lot of feedback. I got a lot of skeptical feedback on this approach. A lot of the, the my stakeholders are like directors and VPs. They would say, hey, Howard, you, you can't do this. They're going to sandbag, right? Now, what I found was interesting is when individuals are free to plan their own work and truly feel empowered, they have a tendency to be maybe a little too sporty versus sandbagging, right? Mm -hmm. You sandbag if you feel you're losing control. You don't sandbag if you feel you are in control. Matter of fact, uh, most of the time I had to I had to bring some reality in their lives. And by the way, it's not the only program you're going to be run. Think about the typical interruptions you have, what your work life's going to be. And so anyway, I, th I think the key to bringing people together and a team together is you have to plan together. It has to be a collective team agreement. And as, as a, a leader, you need to facilitate this. And you need to listen real closely to the things that they're scared about, the things that they're worried about. And then you need to take that as action is how can I get some of these obstacles, real obstacles out of their way? Because if I can't get those real obstacles out of the way, I certainly don't want them committing to something that requires that obstacle not exist. So, empower the team and you everyone's heard that before empower the team yeah well no really empower the team listen to them and you'll be amazed what happened so when we put this plan together it represented the, the 
the prior program from this is just the development phase from the kickoff to first test, which is a, a key milestone in hardware development. Is from the kickoff the design phase to test was let's say 27 months. When we planned out the program, <laughs> we planned it out. The team planned it out for 18 months. Tell you, executive leadership was pretty uh, pretty excited about those results. And it was 18 months, and I was a little worried that, wow, that's pretty sporty and aggressive. And then, of course, in, in product development, you end up with surprises, and we ended up with a huge tooling surprise, very negative tooling surprise that affected us tremendously. But the team rallied, and what is amazing is that was a huge impact, the lead time stuff. We were to test in 17 months. Mm. That was unheard of. And so empower your team, listen to them, and that takes a lot of work. And there's some tools and techniques to, to bring that out naturally and, and bring through people through the steps and the journeys. But you really need to engage the knowledge and the passion of your team members. And if you turn it over to them, man, I'll tell you, you'll really, really, really be surprised what great things happen. So I want to come back to your point around standard work and leveled work. And you had mentioned that there was this need that you saw around, you know, documenting and making sure you're kind of codifying and following these processes or the standard work in a consistent way. And I guess I'm curious if you have any advice for folks that are in similar situations where, you know, maybe they need to be a little more rigorous around how they capture those moments and then how they make sure that they're, you know, continuing to, to do those repeatable things in ways that are consistent. Early in the in the lean journey, just a few years into it, you know, we were, we were trying to do a checkbox. You know, how many how many different things you have to be to be lean, right? Standard work was one of them, and lean is not a checkbox a checkbox event. But anyway, obviously we did that, and we assigned people. And I remember someone was assigned to standard work, and this was one down in, in the uh, larger engineering organization, and. There's several hundred people in this engineering organization. It's very diverse. It's very big. And you think about how much standard work would happen in all these different organizations. I mean, it's a plethora of stuff. And there was some standard processes and there was some culture of following some of them some of the time. But we assigned one person to do standard work. And, you know, what does he do? He goes off and interviews everyone. And, um, and, this creates a culture of, of policing and big brother, all right? Someone's going to come into your organization, and let's say you're in a, a layout design group, and they're coming to your organization, they're going to preach to you the values of standard work and how to do that, and you need to fit into my system of standard work because it's going to be a searchable database. This is going to be a wonderful thing. Now, what do you think the organization's doing? They're going, oh, my God. And, and they're usually going, one is you don't know what we do. And how are you going to come in and tell me how to do my standard work? Two is I'm not a fan of, of I don't know, electronics or databases or whatever. And you don't get any buy-in. You don't get any pull. And you want pull, right? And so what's the best place to get pull? It's the people doing the work again. And an example that I, I'd like to talk about was one of my colleagues in uh, my last role. I was manager of the products management group. And one of my colleagues in the analytical organization, he had about eight people in his group. He bought in real quick this concept of standard work. And he had an organization that had zero standard work. And you think about, you know, we've been doing these products for decades upon decades upon decades. And yet there was no real standard work. They were 
engineering reports here and there that you can glean some sense of standard work from, but it really was not a culture of it. And it was very much tribal knowledge. So Mike goes, hey, guys, in one of his team meetings is, I want to experiment. And by the way, for everyone listening, that's a very, very, very powerful world word because the word experiment means you're going to learn something and it isn't necessarily going to come out the way you think it's going to come out. If you go in there saying, Hey team, we're going to do standard work. This is what we're going to do. And these are all the great things. It puts people on guard because it creates a sense of pass and fail. And I, I don't think that's the best way to build something. So he used the word experiment and he says, we're going to do this. So next time you pull something from a workflow management system, hopefully get a chance to talk a little bit about that. I want you to write down what you did and how you did it. I want you to document that, and that will be our first iteration of standard work. And let's say this is for impeller stresses or whatever it is. And I don't care how you do it. You know, why put a tool as an impediment to exploring and getting started on your journey? And so, you know, some of them were handwritten documents. Others, people did in PowerPoint and who knows, Excel spreadsheet here or there, whatever. Whatever tool was comfortable to them or felt that worked well for them to document, don't let that get in your way. So let them use what they want. So they would go through the work assignment. They would document it. And at the end of it, as a team, they would reflect on what happened. This is the process I used. This is how it worked. And the team would say, hey, I really like that. Let's embody that as our first iteration of standard work. And, and, and Bill, the, the, the director of the organization, he used the phrase, and I like this phrase, it's a recipe, right? So you go to the kitchen, and use someone's recipe. You know, sometimes you decide that you need to add more salt. So you'll cross something out and you put, you know, two teaspoons of salt versus, you know, one and a half teaspoons. So the concept, a lot of times words get in the way and they create emotions within people. So, we kind of de-emotionalize this with the concept of recipe, right? Because everyone's afraid of oh, that changes an experiment. So to this day, and I haven't talked to Mike in a little while, a couple months, but to this day, he, I know he went from zero pieces of standard work to over 30 pieces of standard work probably in a year and a half to two years with this very simple grassroots slow growth. If you look at a standard work today, they all use a very similar format. It's all searchable and all these other things, but it, it was a grassroots gestation and it was done by the people that do the work and the leader took the pain out of it. Uh, and so it was a very small gestation. If you go to an organization and say, hey, by the end of this year, we're gonna have 30 pieces of standard work. Here are the things we're gonna do. And Jack, Jill and Harry, here, go do it. I can tell you that journey is not going to go very long. But if you do a very small growth piecemeal wise with the people doing the work and you take the inhibitors away from them, amazing thing happened. Now, is there any value in that? He discovered some incredible value that he didn't expect. One was the dialogue that uh, occurred when people reflected on the work people did. So there's great learning. There's a great alignment and great growth through that. So there was natural iterations and natural alignment of people doing the work the same way. Typically, in an organization, you have five people do the same thing. They all do it differently. They all do it best by their perspective. It began to bring people together on it was their work, right? Not any individuals, but it was their work. The benefits he saw was not only the learning, but when he onboarded, right, in, in our company, um, engineers and all, we like to go to different parts of the company, a very, very uh, growth-oriented type of company. 
And so the engineers would go to different roles in, in their careers, very, usually very long careers at a company. And so occasionally he would lose people out of his group and he'd bring someone new in. The onboarding and the training and the growth of individuals with the standard work was tremendous. He said that people came up to see much, much faster, learned much, much quicker, and were contributing much faster as well. And a lot of it's offshore work these days. Engineering is you know, mm. a pretty popular thing, and it's got its pluses and minuses. He found, and, and we have we had a relationship with an offshore uh, engineering firm that actually had some direct relationships to us too. And he was able to take the standard work and share it with them as well. So they were able to come up to speed and align very, very quickly with the values and the quality of our work. Where in the past, that was a really difficult and arduous journey. So the, the key, I think, to, to getting standard work off the ground or your, or your recipes off the ground is don't overly complicate it. Empower the people. Uh, don't, don't make the expectations too high. Just have them write something down, start the journey in the dialogue, and it will begin to grow very quickly. But you have to use it every day. It seems like a lot of people mess up that piece of trying to get the system right or trying to perfect the place where it's going to be all put. Yeah. Instead, let's just get people thinking that way. And who cares if, if, um, if they're all living in different places or whatever, because if we build that mindset, the growth and the and the values will start to build and get instilled. So that, that's really powerful. Uh, I want to bring us to a close here because we're kind of running short on time and want to make sure to leave you with an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Yeah, so if I look at my trajectory and where I, where I am today and what enabled the organizations I work with, the people I work with, the teams I work with to innovate and to really bring the needle forward, it was a cultural value and a very simple one, and I, I've used the phrase already, is in 10 to 1, the people are listening. You're, you're all change agents. 10 to 1, you want to be listening to this, you want to change. You're, you're changing it. So this stuff's difficult. So one message I would say is get started tomorrow. Start thinking about maybe what this is, has inspired you to do, right? And make a step forward. What's your next experiment? Run experiments and run small ones, not large, not huge ones. Run small ones and bigger ones and whatever and learn. You will learn from them. So start tomorrow. Start running experiments. Start exploring and learning. Maybe pick up some of the books I suggested if you're interested. And I think I'll, I'll leave everyone with this thought is always be respectful of others. Sometimes that's difficult for us who are passionate about change. Always be respectful of others. Don't forget that. But remain passionately persistent and wonderful things will happen. Thank you so much, Howard. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, we have to do this more often. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.